This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. This time of year, I'm always trying to meet goals around moving more, but getting outside for a walk on cold New England days, not that appealing. But if I've been listening to an addictive audiobook, I'm much more likely to get out there because I know I'll be able to press play and get another chapter in while I exercise. One unpausable thriller you can listen to this winter is The Fortune Seller by Rachel Kapelke Dale, read by Stephanie Cannon. Think Yellow Jackets meets The Cloisters in a coming-of-age story about class, reinvention, and destiny set against the backdrop of two mysterious deaths. Pre-order The Fortune Seller by Rachel Kapelke Dale now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and my guest today is author Constance Sayers. Her new novel, The Star and the Strange Moon, is a haunting tale of ambition, obsession, and the eternal mystery and magic of film, and I highly recommend checking it out. Constance Sayers is also the author of A Witch in Time and The Ladies of the Secret Circus. A finalist for Alternating Currents Luminaire Award for Best Prose, her short fiction has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net. She received her Master's of Arts in English from George Mason University and a Bachelor of Arts in Writing from the University of Pittsburgh. She's also attended the Breadloaf Writers Conference. A media executive, a media executive, she's twice been named one of the top 100 media people in America by Folio and included in their top women in media list. She splits her time between Alexandria, Virginia and West Palm Beach, Florida. Connie, thanks for coming on and congratulations <laughs> on the star and the strange moon. Thank you. And, I, I, and I, we were as we were just talking uh, before we went live, I am in the West Palm beach uh part of my of my journey of the of the year so while it is snowing where you are it is 80 degrees here i'm so sorry i'm (laughs) so jealous this is always the time of year where i really rethink living in new england why did i think this was a good idea as the snow is just pummeling out my window um but i just thought this well the good thing about uh the snowy weather is lots of cozy reading time and i lots of cozy reading yes Yes, and I just really um, loved getting to sneak back for chapter after chapter of The Star and the Strange Moon. I was totally addicted and um, trying to figure out, you know, what exactly was going on and what was going to happen to these characters. I was so invested in them, and I think listeners are are going to really enjoy hearing more about it, and it's a very um, unique premise, so I would love if you could tell us a little bit more about the star and the strange moon. And I'm very curious too how you came to write this one. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the star and the strange moon is uh, about a woman. Uh, she's a, an actress in the 1960s by the name of Gemma Turner. And she's down on her luck. She's kind of traded in her, um, her career to kind of be a girl with the band. And I, I modeled you know, I kind of modeled this on like, you know, the, the Rolling Stones in the 1960s and kind of, you know, and, and they're, they're wild band members. And she's really given up a, a lucrative career uh, as, a, as a star of beach films in Hollywood to, to kind of be the girlfriend. And she's regretting this. And so she's in London and, um, and she gets an offer. No, there are no offers coming in. And she gets an offer from a, um, a, a a director by the name of Thierry Valdon, who is a new wave French film director in Paris. And he gives her, you know, the only offer she gets, which is to go and star in a horror film. And she takes it and she goes to, to the countryside of France and has a really bad feeling about this film. And 
it will prove to be true when she is in the middle of a scene, she gets sucked into inside her film. She gets pulled into it. And so, you know, here she is, she knows the script, she knows what happens and everything in this film is coming to life. And she really had wanted to write this, 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 you know, she was wanted to help. She thought she could actually be a, be a writer. The director had promised her he could be a writer. And she really actually gets a chance to create her version of this, of this film as she is living it. And it's a dual timeline. So you have her, you know, battling, you know, this like gothic horror novel in the 1840s. And then you have um, a modern day boy who has a connection to her that he's not necessarily aware of. And, and he begins to kind of figure out why his mother hated her and you know kind of reacted very poorly to a photo of of Gemma Turner and is haunted by that for the, for all of his life grows up becomes a film um student and a documentary filmmaker and really tries to find out what happened to Gemma Turner who for in in, in modern life has basically disappeared she is an actress who disappeared off of her film set never to be seen again and so it's got a lot of you know it, it is i would say a mashup of um, it's got some light horror uh, in it. It's a, it, it's definitely a gothic, um, you know, a, a gothic fantasy for sure. And I always just, be, I think, because of the way that I write, and I, the, the idea of craft just kind of like drilled into me that you have to kind of have something against the clock or something to kind of keep you going, to kind of keep the thriller esque, to keep people, to keep people wanting to turn the page. So there's always a little bit of the way I set my my books up that has a little bit of a thriller in it. So. If you like, I mean, I think there is kind of a, a wave of like new books that are kind of genre mashups. Uh, it's definitely that for sure. So it's a it's a quest. It's two people on a collision course toward each other through time. Basically. Well, and, and watching them, you know, on that collision course is so fascinating. And, you know, the, um, you know, sort of the quest to find her definitely has this like sense of urgency and right you know just kind of wondering how it's all going to unfold and it kind of got me wondering did you know at the outset how you wanted it to end without giving too much away and what was it like trying to weave these two distinct storylines and characters together well, I will say that I, you know, every book that I have ever written, kind of the research that, I mean, I do a fair amount, all my books are historical novels of some sort. And so that always, you, you do a ton of research for those. And when I'm researching it, I generally come across a nugget that I like file away and it's like, okay, I mean, oh, that could be a, a, a good book, you know? And I knew that I wanted to do a book about a haunt, about a cursed film that, you know, th that drew an actress into it. I knew that. I had started off, originally I had told my um, agent that I was going to go back to the Hollywood in the 1930s, which I have done uh, in a witch in time. It's just a, it's a, it's a place I feel comfortable, a, a period I feel very comfortable in. And I was like, okay, I'll go back there and I'll do a cursed film in the 1930s in Hollywood. And then I came across a photo of um, Francois Dorliac, who is Catherine Deneuve's older sister who was killed tragically in a car crash in 1967. So she had this like film, like this film career that never came to be. And uh, Catherine Deneuve never spoke of her as she was so devastated. And 
you know, you uh, that just really kind of like, again, filed away in my head. And I kept coming back to this period of 1960, the 1960s, which are a really rich time. I mean, A, for the like the music industry, I wanted to like, you know, she was with the band, I kind of liked that. I loved like the, you know, the British invasion in the 1960s. But I also, there was this great thing going on in France with, you know, with, with French new wave film. And you had people like, you know, Jane Fonda who were like drawn into it. And I, I, I kind of like, it started like changing for me from the 1930s to the 1960s. And so when I approached it, I, I knew what I wanted. And then I had this boy who is shattered at the beginning by the loss of his mother and her reaction to this this film star. And I knew I was gonna weave them together. And I, I, I usually know pretty quickly where I'm going um, with, my, with my book. So I, I, I definitely knew that there were some things that Gemma wasn't gonna be able to surmount. I'll just leave it at that. Um, so yeah, I, I always generally go in knowing what, what I'm going to be, you know, the layout of the book in general. And, and you have to, you know, I mean, Hachette is wonderful, but they, you, you have to write a treatment for them in order for them to sign off and greenlight your book. So that, that was all there, but then you find these like really cool discoveries along the way. And that always happens to me. Like, you know, you put the, so I'm a plotter in that regard. I, I plot the book out. But then, you know, like in every book, there's a character that I didn't anticipate liking as much as I do. And they end up just kind of like, you know, like in my head a lot more than I, I thought they were going to end up. And so in this case, uh, in this book, it was Ivy Cross. Oh, and interesting. I really, I liked her. Like, I thought she was a pain in the butt, but I thought she was the torque that Christopher needed to kind of drive him on. And I really ended up liking her. And I gave her a surprise at the very, very last, that last epilogue, the, the, the epilogue was a, an 11th hour hold the presses epilogue um, because I felt that I needed to tie some things together and I wanted her to have the last word. So I'll just leave, I don't think that spoils anything, but I, no. I, just, I, I felt that, I felt that, um, and that happened also in the Ladies of the Secret Circus with um, uh, uh, Teddy Barrow, uh, who also kind of gets a, a, a very similar treatment. And they were both just very powerful characters that were secondary characters that I felt were kind of essential to the quest. I, I also have <laughs> kind of learned, Laura, that I, I write quest novels. That's what they're all about. Like they're all like, there's, it's, it's, it's heading to the underworld. You know, all of my novels are quest novels that like you head to the underworld to find hidden strength, to find out who you are, to find out some secret. I mean, that's, that is kind of a theme, a recurring theme, I think, in all my books. I love that. And I think we're all drawn to those stories and they just make for really satisfying reads. Mm -hmm. And I, that's so interesting too, how you were saying before that have the time period changed of being drawn to the 1960s. And then of course you have the further back, timeline which is like 1870s i think yeah um, i actually said 1840 <clears throat> that was incorrect it was 1868 i think it was i have to you know um yeah and so it was not my usual bell epoch 1896 so i i kind of went a little bit out of my my comfort zones uh with some of the time periods for myself well yeah. and for capturing the setting in france for that 1800s mm -hmm timeline. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you went about that. And I think I read that you took a trip to France, maybe for, was it for a previous novel or did you do it for this one too? 
Yeah. So I, I try to get to France as much as possible. COVID kind of like, you know, so I, the last trip, the last trip I did there, I think was 2019. And I did not know that this book was going to be set where it was set. And we headed out to the Loire Valley and stayed in this like really beautiful yet kind of like spooky chateau. And that would become the basis for, um, for Chateau Verenson and the, the the location of this film shoot, and basically where she, you know where where Gemma finds herself living, and you know, and it had like all the trappings of that amazing. Like, there's this um, there's this great thing uh, that uh, they have about, uh, and it's about like w- women running from castles, like that whole 1960s uh, kind of Gothic era. And I was reading books around that period of time where you had like Gothic was really big in the 1960s. So you had Dark Shadows, you had, you know, you had um, all of these novels that were, you know, that 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 had like kind of Rebecca-esque, like, you know, women are drawn to a, you know, like a mysterious, you know, tall, dark stranger who has a dark secret and he lives in a house, you know, and and, and you always (laughs) have these like, running from you'll see this whole period of time um like where you have these women running from these castles and uh I, I kind of wanted that for for this book so i did like a lot of reading about i mean you know like kind of what was going on in france at the time and you know you you always want to know but the first thing you want to know is like what was happening politically um i knew a little bit about where we were going because i've done a lot of research on the belle epoque period so i was just basically kind of coming in right before that and there was this just, you know, kind of like othering of, uh, you know, like there was a, a lot of tension between France and Germany around that period of time. And so you had like, so, so you know, knowing that and framing that is very important because the cousins are, you know, are they coming from Germany? Are they coming from Italy? That, that kind of matters because like there was this kind of, you know, period of time in, in, in France where, you know, uh, the othering of other cultures, they were just not really, you know, down with people, cousins coming in from, from other countries. And so you, I knew that, um, but I did a fair amount of research on, you know, like the importance of the chateau, you know, I mean, you know, especially in the Loire Valley, it was to be near the king. And so there was this, you know, whole kind of like, you know, and then you had the French commune right around the, you know, and so then, you know, and you, and you would have had, um, just what was going on. Uh, also, the food uh, of the region, the wine of the region, um, what people were wearing, what women would you know do, what the life in the country was like. And so I did all of that research, which I think goes into the building of a film set that would have mirrored that period of time. So you were always kind of like, it was like, yeah, you're in the time, but you know you're in a fake film set. So that right. was kind of interesting. So it's not really reality. It's it's the t- it's the the version of what the director thought reality was, and so and the funniest thing I think about the book, and I tried to be humorous about this, is it's kind of a wild ride. Like she comes in, she knows the out, she knows what's going to happen, and it's not good. Okay, it's a it's a it's a horror film where like they all end up in, in bad shape, and she starts to like these these characters in that are like minor characters are like the maid the the but you know the, the butler the groundskeeper and what happens is like they're just like groundskeeper two you know made one you know and and they become people to her and they become her support group and her support system but they don't really know how to act outside of the script so you see these like kind of rather comical things 
where like if she sits in a different place, they don't know how to like hand her a cup of coffee because she's not where the script says she's supposed to be. So the, I tried to play with that and have some fun with that. And then you have the retake, which she, she has a couple chapters where she doesn't do the scene. She, she takes creative liberties and tries to change up the script, which, which freaks everybody out who's a supporting character. But also the director who she doesn't know is also saying, well, you know, we're going to do that again because you didn't because you're cheating. Dracula wouldn't come around for another eight years. So you've got to go back and do it again. So there is this kind of fun I have with the fact that she has more knowledge of the script, but she's not supposed to. So right. and it makes her sort of side of the quest so interesting because you're like, even if she does in some of those chapters, it's like, even if she does you know, achieve what she needs to achieve. It doesn't even matter sometimes because it's like Groundhog Day again. um, Right. Which was, it was fun to read. It was fun because then nobody else remembers that they did, you know, like, you know, that, that, that they had a dinner party the night before and she's like, Oh God, here we go again. And so there is that kind of like, and I love that. And I I love how she spends like the first couple of hours searching for a phone line because she's sure that she's been kidnapped. She's sure by a bunch of crazed fans and, you know, and like, you know, and, and they, they keep thinking she has the fever and which you get sent away for the fever. So, I mean, again, I try to have some fun with, um, with those sections as well, because, you know, they're, they are a little campy. Yeah, it, it was, it was very fun to read and even, and also just, you know, another layer of horror because you're also imagining like, at least for me, I'm imagining what can happen if you're a woman at the time and you're, you know, she's being threatened with being, you know, put in like an asylum or something you have. um, It's sort of a whole nother level of horror to be a kind of powerless woman then, um, which was interesting to to read about. Um, Are there any Victoria? Oh yeah. Sorry. You go. Yeah. Victoria Holt. (laughs) It was Victoria Holt novels. That's what I, I, I just off the top of my head, I couldn't remember. Victoria Holt novels are fantastic. And I based them, it's like women running from castles, you know, and, and like that is, there's just, I mean, my mom used to read them all the time when I was growing up. And so that was like, I, I really based a lot of that, you know, the, the about the, 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 the film itself was based on that type of Gothic framework. And so if you like that, that's you know if you're if you're like oh yeah I love Victoria Holt novels you'll love I mean like like, like you'll you'll feel very much at home with the Star and Strange movie. Well, I was going to ask too. I had um you know so you prior to this have had um the ladies of the Secret Circus and a Witch in Time and I had read that you know you. I think turned 40 and sort of had kind of said to yourself, like it's now or never, I really want to start on this like path to becoming an author. I would love to hear a a little bit about that writing journey. And I know I'd love to hear a little bit about your day job too, as well, which I'm sure has been quite the juggle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I I was always a writing major in uh, both the university of Pittsburgh. And then I um, uh, went to George Mason university part-time at night. Uh, I've always had a day job um, and I worked in media. So I worked at one point we were owned by the Atlantic and actually worked for the Atlantic and national journal and a few um, uh, publications. I, I did events and I would like do the, the political conventions. And I, you know, worked with, um, you know, ABC and 
NBC. And so it, it was a really wonderful, prominent job. Um, and I still, you know, I, I still do that, but I actually kind of went over into sales and so I'm the chief revenue officer. So it's a pretty big full-time job, but I definitely, and the only reason I say that is because it would come crashing down in my in my writing life. And so, you know, I would, you know, I always wrote short stories. Um, that's what the basis of workshopping in for the master's degree. And then I actually wrote my master's thesis on the Barbie doll, which is oh. not cool. Now, <laughs> now, now it would be, cool. trust me, it was not <laughs> um, at the time. Although it was, it was fun way to spend a year. You had to spend your year doing something. And so I actually did the, you know, my, like I said, my thesis was on the Barbie doll and my advisor was uh, the writer, Susan Shreve. And um, so, you know, I did that and I, you know, after I graduated, I went to the Writer's Center in Bethesda and I would, I started leaping into uh, like a longer narrative that I wanted to tell. And so I had this book called Rustic Mornings and I workshopped it probably for, I'm going to say between six and eight years and um, just really didn't know how to write a novel, but I would, you know, I would send out short stories and get rejected and then I would you know, work on this novel. And then finally, I had it in good enough shape, I thought, that I did send it out to like 65 agents. They all, I mean, I got a bunch of rejections. People kind of liked it. I would get some, you know, but I got re ultimate rejections. And so I started doing this thing and I highly recommend it for writers. I'll just give a piece of advice if, if you, if, if for anyone who wants it. I started Writer's Digest has these things where they will read, like, like it, it's a workshop on like your first 10 pages or whatever. And you you pay a little bit more for it, but what happens is they assign you an agent. And what that did for me, and I think I did it three times, so I probably spent about five hundred dollars on it. So I'm not good; it's not cheap. But what it did was I stopped having that. You would get the stuff back from from agents saying, um, "I just don't connect with the work." Well, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. You know, I didn't know what you know. And so the first couple, like you know, one person said to me, one agent said this is a cozy mystery, right? And I was like, no, she, then she's like, then I have no interest in it. But that was helpful. That was helpful feedback. At least I was starting to kind of, because I didn't really understand the market. Um, and then I, uh, I, I did a, a session with Sandra Dykstra Agency and I met my agent, Roz Foster. And she just took the 10 pages, liked what she saw, said, send me 50 pages. And from December until um, April, we worked together on my book um and she hadn't signed me she just was like kind of like helping me um and then i actually got interest from another agent and i said to her like i, I like i'm actually getting some interest from an earlier query i had sent but i wanted to work with her and so she represented me and we went out with that novel and that novel did not sell so i was devastated because it had taken me eight years to write that novel and i just want to say that to everybody because like i don't think people talk about that enough and um, I was like, how on earth am I going to take another eight years? I was 40 years old. And I was like, seriously, like, this is like, I really need to like have some success. Or I was just devastated. I really was. And I licked my wounds for about six months. And then in May, she sent me a note. She goes, hey, what about that other novel you said you were going to work on? That was really great. And I hadn't done anything on it. And I was still devastated. And I said to her, but I, I just won't admit defeat. So I was like, I'll have it for you by September. And that meant I had to crank out a second draft and that would become a witch in time. And, uh. you know, a year later, and I just think, you know, I mean, it like I, I turned in the first draft to her 
And and I was supposed to meet her for the first time in person because we actually had not met. And she said, look, I'm not going to have probably have time to like read this this book before I meet you, but that'll be, you know, and I was like, okay. And I got there and it was like dog-eared. And here she was like, I, I could, I, you know, it was like dog-eared. She's like, I could not put it down. Now oh, I will wow. say that no one had said that about my first book. It was just a better book. A Wish in Time was a better book. It it kind of gripped people from the beginning. People liked the different lives, and um, and then we we sold that then to Hachette uh, for a three book deal. And that is so encouraging so, to hear because what if you had just said, "All right, I've put in this eight years. I guess this is just yeah. not meant to be." And you know, it didn't take another eight years to write the next one. So, um. well, you know what? Someone, I, I actually spoke with uh, the book doctors. They're a great group. They're a husband and wife team. I, but their, their names are forgetting, you know, and I just was really devastated. And I just happened to be talking to them and I was like, this happened to me. And she said, you know, do you want it? And I said, I do. Then you'll get it. That's the, you know, and, and it is just, that constant learning, getting feedback back and making the changes. And I will say this, if, you know, if you are an aspiring writer, one of the things that they do, um, you know, like Sarah Guan picked me out of the slush pile and, you know, you have a meeting with them and she put together, you know, probably 11 pages of single space, thoughtful notes about where she thought a witch in time could be better. If you can't handle that, don't get yourself signed up for a book contract because like, you know, it is a collaborative effort. It is not, you know, these people that like bristle at any, you know, it's just, that's not the way publishing works. And right. you really work together on a book and you want to work together because you're, I mean, it's scary going out with, you know, I mean, going out with your, you know, like, hi, this, this came out of my brain and I hope, you know, a hundred thousand of my closest friends like, like it. I mean, that's, that's very scary stuff. And so it's good to have, my point is it's good to have your editor and your publicist and your, and your imprint standing behind you on that because you're like, okay, here I go. We're all going together. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You can't be so like precious about every word and everything and, and be open to. Otherwise you're lonely. Yeah. Well, I'm curious that, especially since you really had to crank out, um, uh, you really had to crank out a witch in time. What have you found to help you in terms of like really keeping that pace up along with, you know, your full-time job and everything? Do you have like certain accountability systems? Are you just really disciplined about writing in the early morning or late at night? Um, what's your writing routine like? Um, I generally write a thousand, when I'm writing, I write a thousand words a day. And so I, I write those whenever because my schedule can kind of be all over the place. And so, um, and then I, I'm a big, I did NaNoWriMo twice. Uh, I did it, I completed it once and didn't complete it one, one year. So I feel like I've, you know, both achieved and failed that, which is, they're both good things to have experienced. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm a devotee of that. You, you put down the, you know, the 50, 60,000 words and they're not precious. I will say too, from having worked at the Atlantic, um, you know, you've got some great writers there. I worked, I'm not a journalist, but I worked with journalists. And what I learned from journalists is that your work is not precious. You, you, if you have to turn in an article or two every day, there's a discipline to that. You turn in your articles, you turn in your words and, you know, and, and you, you know, you, you send them off and you work with your editors, but like, 
I don't know. I did what everyone did, did, which is I, I, my first 50 pages, I worked on them to death. I will say now I know my, my first pages are the last pages I actually write. Cause I don't, don't even really know the story until I've written the story. So mm, I just start off and I just keep moving through it. And the, the middle part's the hardest because you've got to keep the, and, and so I do a, a simple three act structure generally. I've got to keep the, I've got to build the, the, the tension and the, the interest in the first, uh, a third. The second, I have to hold your interest. And then the third, you know, the final third, you're, you're, you know, you're wrapping up. I will say I took more time with the Star in the Strange Moon. Um, the Star in the Strange Moon simmers a little bit more in the first half of the book than A Witch in Time or The Ladies of the Secret Circus did. And that was intentional because I wanted you as a reader to settle into um, to settle into Christopher's story and Gemma's story so that when they, uh, you know, when, if, when, and if they come together, you are, um, you know, you're, it's worth the payoff, you know what I mean? So that was definitely something that I wanted to do. I'm curious, are you able to say anything about kind of what the um, either time period or the world is for the next book that you're working on? I'm, my next book is a Victorian Gothic. And oh, okay. one of the characters is the Reaper, the Grim Reaper. Oh, and so, um, yeah. And I don't know that I'm doing a dual time. I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit on this next one. I just want to kind of have a, you know, a, a pretty simple, straight up Gothic romance type of book that is um, originally, originally I actually had written a contemporary uh, I was, was working on a contemporary version of this and cause I really love like Rachel Harrison. I love, I mean, and I was like, okay, let me just kind of not write a bunch of historical novels. I can't do it. Like I, there's just something I'm so in love with history. I'm so always looking in the rear view mirror of history and I want, to write those. And finally I said to my agent, I said, I just can't do it in, I can do modern with dual timeline, but I just can't do a straight up, like, I don't know, modern book. I wish I could, but it's, it's just, it's not who I am as a writer. So I'm just trying to like learn from every book that I've written. And so this one is just going to be a, just a, a really straightforward um, mystery. Uh, Victorian mystery. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I've actually started working on it. Um, I took a little bit of time off um, after, you know, you're just kind of spent after a book and promoting a book and editing the book and all of that. And I wanted to, I hadn't read in a while. And um, so I, I, I did take some time to to read and I like enjoyed the holidays and, and my day job was, was kind of brutal this year. And so um you know, it, it, I just, I did, I, I have learned that I do take the time that I have to, my brain does need a rest after a book and it wants to play. And so I have, I'll do things like, I mean, I, I built a Lego, I'll build Legos or I'll do like, I'll build puzzles or things like that. My brain wants something else to do. I try, I took up knitting and I ended up crying. Oh, no. um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a knitter, but I took a knitting class because my my brain like wanted it. and I kind of listened to it. It's just like, okay, it like wants to build things. It doesn't want to mm -hmm. like, you know, write things anymore. And so, you know, I do let myself do that. Let my I, I, like uh, baking, cooking, things like that. Just things with my hands. Like I, I did that for the holidays, which was really great. Took a little bit of a break, drove down to Florida, which is awesome. 
and always a really good time for me to kind of like purge and, you know, and just kind of reset my, you know, my year. Yeah. Well, and giving yourself, I think some different seasons, um, right. I think can be smart. And that's, I think it's so helpful to get a window into people's different creative lives because, you know, I think sometimes we can pressure ourselves to be, you know, like always, always on. And sometimes, yeah, your brain needs to do something different for a while. And, you know, um, take, take some cues from out my window of, you know, sometimes it's uh-huh. snowing and you need to well, make yeah, or do something no. different. And sometimes you're ready to, you know, well, come, come back out and write. Um, if, if you if you are a Lego enthusiast, I built the typewriter, which is one of the hardest Legos. I didn't know it was a hard Lego, and like literally, it's like a schematic, like an electro, like it looks like an electronic schematic. And you're like, you build it like one thing at a time, and it was just such a different way for my brain. And I always loved Legos as a kid. I was like, okay, I'll try this, and it was really fun. And and also, I will say too that you know one thing that you have to kind of keep doing when I come down here to Florida, I'm much more. Um, cognizant of like taking care of myself a little bit more too so like I you know like the gym I belong to down here always has like you know dance classes and things like that and I do a lot of that too because that's also important to you know kind of stay healthy too because like you can sit around too much you know I mean like when I'm writing it's just like okay I I need to get up and move around so yeah for sure when you're motivating me we we have been doing (laughs) lots of uh well that and also the Legos I they are not my favorite thing to do with my children to sit there and follow all the little directions but if I think of it as a break for my brain maybe that would help me well one of the other things I wanted to ask was um you know if you have been taking any time to read for fun lately and if there's any books that you're wanting to recommend yeah so um you know i drove to pittsburgh for the holidays and i drove down to uh down to west palm beach so i had about you know 24 hours in the car and i have been i also i often read and listen at the same time so i'll have a book on my kindle or, or you know and then i'll also have an audiobook um that i'm reading so I, I finished, um, I wanted a holiday book. So I did The Mischief of the Mistletoe, which was by Lauren Willing. And I really loved it. It gave like, you know, um, pudding cake, like a whole different, the, the Christmas pudding was like a like a, a weapon. And it was really funny. Ooh. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really funny. And then I read um, a, a Half a Soul by Olivia Atwater. Phenomenal. Um, I jumped on the Belladonna Foxglove um uh, bandwagon by Adeline Grace. Loved both of those. Read both of those. Um, and my entire Florida, you know, um, drive was was devoted to the Fourth Wing. I'm I'm on board with the Fourth Wing with Rebecca Yaros. I I I love it. I I want to just walk the dogs all the time so I can like figure out what's going on with um, Violet and Zayda and Zayden. Um, it's and funny just, you say I that. I just finally requested the audiobook this morning from the library because <laughs> the last three people I've talked to, finally, my sister this morning was like, have you read Fourth Wing yet? You really have to read it. It'll be the perfect escape. I'm like, all right, I need to do it. <laughs> and I was just, I don't know. I do kind of feel like you can get in your head when you're writing. And I wanted to kind of like, particularly with um, Belladonna and Foxglove and, you know, and the Fourth Wing, I wanted to kind of like, okay, what is, what are people reading and listening to now? Because I do think it, it, you know, I don't want to be too much in my head. I mean, it's very inspirational to kind of be like, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. That's what's going on, you know, right now. And you want to keep an eye on that. You don't want to be, a, you know, you want to like, like, you know, have that drive everything you do. But you also, I think, want to know what's, what's, what's out there and what's important and what people's tastes 
books are, what, what they're reading and listening to. I am, I am over the moon over Fourth Wing and I started, um, I started Iron Flame. So, and I listened to that and I, I have to, I just love, you know, I love the audible. The audible changed my life. It's very great to, you know, to I walk dogs, and so I put the headphones on and, and go. And then I also started. Um, I, I got a preview of how to, a book called How to Become the Dark Lord and Die Trying by Django Wexler, which is a fantasy book, which is phenomenal. And he is in in the you know the nice thing about being a writer is you get to you know blurb for other writers. And I have to say that's really a treat that's coming out in uh, early 2024, and it's great. So. I'll I think I read like five out. things. It's great. Yeah, that's great. So. And I'm, I agree. I'm definitely a fan of the audiobooks. Um, and yeah, well, I just, I've so enjoyed getting to hear more about your writing journey and the process behind this book. I think it's so helpful when people are able to um, kind of share behind the scenes. And I just really hope that listeners go out and um, pick up the star in the strange moon. It would be just a great choice to sort of binge read over a few days and you're going to get, you know, very just swept away by these characters and creeped out in the best way and really want to know what (laughs) happens to them on their quest. So definitely recommend it. And Connie, just thanks so much for coming on and being here. Thank you very much, Laura. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.